All right. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today, we've got a little bit of a different segment going on for us. We've got a uh, roundtable discussion going on about the mental health field and as well as recovery. And right now we have Kyle, Barbara, and Randall with us. How's everyone doing this morning? Great. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. And I just want to just let's go around, introduce <laughs> each other um, to get a uh, to know each other a little bit better as well as our background. Let's start with you, Kyle. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from the Philadelphia area. Right now I reside a little bit outside in Bus County. And um, I am a person in long-term recovery from both um, alcohol and cocaine addiction, uh, that including crack, and mental health, mental health, which came up much later. Um, I am former military. I am now currently a therapist in training to become a clinical psychologist, finishing my doctoral project as we speak, and looking forward to this this discussion. Thanks, Kyle. And how are you this morning, Barbara? Hi, um, I'm good. My name's Barbara Egan. I'm a, um, I live in California. I grew up in Southern California in a pretty poor area, and I, um, became addicted to alcohol and drugs, meth. Um, I have been clean and sober since March 6, 2001. So looking towards my 21st birthday and I returned to school after getting clean and sober and um, I pursued drug and alcohol, then went into social work. And so I became a Got my MSW, master's in social work in 2011, and then became licensed in 2015. So I've worked in a lot of different fields, um, a lot of different programs. And um, I currently work at, it's called, well, it's a, it's a homeless center. And I live now on the Central Coast in San Luis Obispo. So I've only been there a few months. I've worked at the state hospital before that. Um, I'm also active, pretty active in my recovery. Um, and uh, so let's see, I have lots of thoughts about everything. And um, I, you know, I know that we all have our own experiences. And one of the things that I learned in school, one in, um, I think it was medical aspects or something like that. Maybe it was, anyway, I remember one of the, the professors saying, there's no one right way. <laughs> and I thought, huh. You know, because um, that so that really resonated with me because I thought, well, if it worked for me, my way probably will work for everyone. And that's not the case. And so I try to be open minded. And I know that we're going to be talking about harm reduction and medication assisted treatment. So that'll be that's an interesting topic. And um, that's probably enough out of me. I have my dog in the background. Sophie. That's right. Good morning to the pup as well. And uh, my friend Randall, how are we doing this morning? Good morning, guys. I'm coming from the Midwest, uh, Illinois. Uh, what did you want to say? Indiana area, Wisconsin, close uh, Iowa. So, um, I've uh, am in recovery. Have been I've been around for over 20 years with about three relapses. I've recently just uh, celebrated a year last month again, which I'm very proud of. Uh, so, uh, this has been a journey on and off. I think, uh, for my, my relapses, I've been a part of my recovery, which has made me a much stronger person and more mm-hmm. humble person. Um, 
I have my master's in addiction counseling. I uh, received that in 2011. Uh, and I've also worked in healthcare as a nurse and many other different fields, uh, put it that way. I won't go too far into it now. Uh, and I guess I can say I'm really strong into recovery. Uh, I, I enjoy what I do today. Today I work with veterans. Uh, it's a different pro town. I work with veterans. Uh, and I don't really want to put my company out there just yet because <laughs> we've been recorded. <laughs> so I'm going to leave it at that. Um, uh, I work with people uh, in that field. I am a, a clinical therapist uh, for one part of the company. And then I also work as a case manager for the other part of the company. So I work like two hats. Uh, so it's really an honor to work with the veterans. And uh, it's a lot more than I'm learning about helping them to succeed because I have not only dealt with my drug of choice, which was crack cocaine. And later, as I heard Kyle mention, later came on the mental illness part. You know, I suffered with a lot of depression and anxiety, uh, which I was medicated a long time ago for that, but no more. Uh, today, my treatment and recovery is making meetings. Uh, I just enjoyed being able to be a part of this platform to see uh, where everybody's minds are at. I'm always looking to learn more. Um, as an expert, no. Uh, I like to always be teachable and to learn more on what everybody at, at insight is on what recovery is because everybody has so many different opinions about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and also I'm a part of the LGBTQA plus community. Okay. Jim, can I add a little bit more? Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. Yeah, let me add a little bit more. Um, so um, I'm 55 years old. I've been seeking for recovery since I was 22. So that's mm-hmm. over 20, 33 years. Now, mm-hmm. I heard that Randall said that I need to see this too. I know it was going to come up later on, but I figure let me just pepper this now. Um, I have more time sober than I have actually using. And that's from the very beginning of my use too. Okay. I've been fighting this ever since I was 22 years old. Mm-hmm. My active use is really more of a pattern where my active use was a pattern of binging and regret and trying to get my life back together again. Mm-hmm. Um, my last relapse was over 11 years ago now. Okay, uh, but I attribute that to a combination of things, not just one thing. And I think that's important because I, as we go along our discussion, I'm gonna hold back some things. But as we go along in our discussion, as Randall already shared, that was so eloquent how things started to come together and we find our niche. Same thing with Barbara, how we found that that clarity and that niche to stay sober, what was going to make us sober, what was going to make us who we are today. So I'm gonna hold back on some things, but I figured let me say up, up front. And thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the things you mentioned before, Kyle, was for each one of us, and you can start, Kyle, what does recovery mean to you? How would you define recovery? You know, at the beginning of my uh, uh, my searching for recovery when I was 22 years old, uh, I wasn't sure what was happening with me. I have a deep faith in Christ. Uh, I'm a Christian. Um, and I felt that I really wasn't being the best Christian I could be. So I went back to the church. Well, as I went back to the church and I kept... Uh, falling and kept relapsing. I had multiple relapses uh, because I really tried. It wasn't like a time that I did not really try to stay sober. Well, eventually I found people in my family actually was in recovery and I started doing what they did, AA. And it did work for a little bit. It did until it didn't. Okay. And I'm trying to figure out what, why am I having these problems? 
Well, years go by, number of tries go by, five years sober, one year sober. And I went through this experiment of understanding what recovery really meant to me, not just to somebody else, but what it meant to me. And what I found out was that it was something key that happened to me when I was in my 40s. I'm 55 now, so almost 11 years ago. My mother told me, what you're doing doesn't seem like you're actually an hardened addict. Looks like you may have some mental health going on. She's a social worker, clinical social worker. And I said, maybe you're right. And when I started that path, that's what set me where I am today. Recovery is a total body and lifestyle change to me. It includes mind, body, spirit, soul, and intellect. All these parts of of our humorous, I believe, must be in balance in some way, or at least we need to cope with the things that are not. I really believe that recovery means I must learn how to stay sober. I must act accordingly to sobriety. I must allow other people to speak to me about recovery. And I need to continue to grow. This is what recovery means to me. I don't think uh, one way is the best way for everybody. I believe that we as practitioners should be able to give them as much as possible as far as clients concerned and allow them to choose what what best works with them in their own pursuit of their happiness. I see recovery now as the process of being happy with my life, being able to be free from the things that stop me from living my best life. So therefore, recovery to me is living my best life. Great. It's great. And how about you, Barbara? What does recovery mean to you? Sorry, I had muted myself. Yeah, I mean, what a nice way to um, to d- define recovery and um, living your best life. I would have to say I agree with that. I um, my um, my story starts from a growing up in a um, alcoholic home and being one of eight kids and feeling. I mean, I'm almost hesitant because all of us have our own stories. But for me, I struggled with depression and with um, just a lot of challenges right right from the start. I um, and I then started using alcohol and drugs. And when I meth was the thing for me, like when I first used meth, I think I was 22 and it just made me feel wonderful. I felt like, wow, you know, and, and, um, and I also knew the first time that I used it literally in my head thought, uh Oh, this is going to be a problem. And, um, and I'll never forget that. And it was, and so I, um, I used off and on until I was 40 drank used. I mean, pretty consistently when I say off and on, I only had like a very, very brief, um, attempt at re at recovery went to rehab and stayed clean and sober maybe only four months relapsed on um weed which i you know didn't do anything that was recommended um i uh so i when i finally did get clean and sober my recovery started with um a the a long the longest program that i could get into which was 90 days and i detoxed for five and um, really, really surrendering and really getting to the point where I didn't 
know what I was going to do next, but I was, I wasn't going to use or drink anymore. And, um, I was going to do whatever I could to, to make that happen and to make it happen in the easiest way possible, believe it or not. Like I wasn't into be challenging myself. It was just like, let's just kind of cushion this ride until I get stronger. And, um, I lived in a sober living for almost a year after the program ended. And that was a really interesting experience. And it kept me sober that first year for sure. And, um, so yeah, recovery is really, like he said, like Kyle said, it's about living my best life. Um, constantly now I also deal with depression and, um, most of my anxiety has gone away. I have been able to work through by, having new experiences. Um, for example, when I was younger and was in college, I used to drop any class that had a uh, oral presentation involved. Now you can't really, I love it. I love, love being like on in front of people and um, it's become something I, as a, I have as a strength, at least that's how I see it and it's fun. And so I just learned, um, uh, how to do life sober, but that doesn't mean that I, don't have experiences where I get away from the program. And when I get away from the program, I get away from my, um, to, the program to me is having really um, integrity, a good connection with people who can give me feedback and suggestions and be honest with me and, um, and just staying in, in the flow so that I maintain a, a, an attitude of gratitude. And, um, and once I lose that, I'm not on recovery anymore. I'm on that other path of poor me, you know, I feeling sorry for myself. Things are hard, blah, blah, blah. So I can choose either way. And, um, but I have to be diligent to stay on that path that where I feel grateful, where I am grateful. And, um, and, you know, the rest is just recovery is also about, um, being put in situations where I can work with others and, um, I have that experience. I mean, I, I can understand what they're going through to the best of my ability. And, um, it's, it's very heartfelt. My, the work that I do with people is I feel it in my heart. I, uh, and, uh, not always, you know, but there are people who still bother me, <laughs> but anyway, I think you know what I'm saying. So yeah, it's a gift. I'm, I'm blessed and I'm, um, I've been gifted with this life. And, um, so that's recovery for me. Interesting. And how about you, Randall? You're, you're muted, Randall. You're on mute. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, technology. <laughs> I, my, my journey started, um, I'm 52, um, uh, 53 this year. My journey started around 1998. Uh, with my recovery process, I was I was introduced. I come from a family of eight, uh, <clears throat> and I am the, the youngest. And uh, I've seen it all my life in the community, where it was so sociable, mm -hmm. acceptable, mm -hmm. you know, to drink and smoke pot. You know, that was the thing every everybody did. It wasn't like nobody didn't do it. Everybody I knew did it. Mm -hmm. uh, family, cousins, friends, neighbors, and. Um, it was something that I was sworn that I would never do when I was in grade school. 
by the time I reached high school and my maybe my sophomore year, I began to to try it. I guess I wanted to be more accepted because I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be wanted. Uh, I wanted to be with the crowd. I wanted to hang out. Uh, I was tired of just being just the eighth student, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I experimented with, you know, alcohol, beer and alcohol and, and, and marijuana. And it, it didn't seem like a problem uh, until I began to deal with challenges of who I was. You know, uh, understanding that as a black man, uh, being gay was something that was bullied at, not accepted. Uh, I was born in a Christian family, Baptist, uh, something that I had to really hide behind other doors to stay in the closet about. So I dealt with a lot of that through my high school years. And I think that was one of the biggest things. You know, I would see other people that was real more flamboyant than I was. And I always wanted to just be able to be out. And I couldn't because I hear people make fun of people, laugh people. So, and we hurt people physically. Uh, as I graduated high school, I began to drink more, party more. I had the more freedom of being able to get out and do other things. I believe my disease took more of a control over me, the addiction did, not the disease, the addiction did. Uh, when I began to become more familiar with the LGBTQ plus A community, which was just called the gay community back then, and uh, experimenting with drugs and sex uh, became a really big part of my coping mechanism because I would live two lives. You know, I would go out and party one side of town where it was acceptable, the clubs, and come back home and be the straight guy. Uh, maybe my family knew some of my mannerisms or whatever. You know, I never really had a girlfriend. Maybe I tried a few times just to prove that I wasn't. Uh, but that didn't last for long. Uh, even with the sex part, it didn't last for long. Uh, so I struggled with that in a hard way by uh, drinking more and smoking more. You know, when I was around the gay community, then that's when crack was just coming out, like in around in, in the Midwest and around in the late 80s. And experimenting with that, it became a more prevalent thing to do in that community. It's more acceptable, it was party time, sex was involved, relationships, and it felt good. And I didn't consider myself addicted because back then a person who was addicted to alcohol or drugs you saw what they look like on the corner street, and that just wasn't me. I didn't consider myself that way. Uh, it's jump ahead years, as years went by, you know, I continued to get into a lot of trouble. You know? Police is in the law and all of this situation, relationships, family. Uh, couldn't keep a job. I had jobs, plenty of jobs, just couldn't keep them. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, I want to say around 98, I ended up with a DUI, and I ended up, can you guys hear me? I ended up... Uh, getting a DUI and that's when I was first introduced by the courts to go to these classes that they called them uh, and to counseling and to do AA meetings and that wasn't for me as I said when I was really young then but I went to fulfill that because I didn't want to go to jail uh, of course I went back and did my thing for years uh, about two or three years later uh, I came back to the program uh, running to the program uh, again because of loss of situations with the law and family. I was doing it for them that day, that, again for them. Uh, stayed long, I think I stayed clean for about maybe two or three years. Um, 
it worked. I did finally start working steps for the first time that time. I had got a sponsor. I was doing NA at that time, and it was really rough because back then NA was just so, I hate to say it, ghetto to me. That's what I look back on it now. They're so harsh, uh, and I definitely wouldn't have revealed even to my sponsor that I was gay, you know, because they made fun of everybody. You know, they think it was about wearing gold and looking nice and grabbing Cadillacs, you know, and um, and again, uh, relationships was a real big bad thing for me. So I was so wanting to be wanted that when the first guy came along, you know, whether he was getting high drug, drugs or whatever, I lowered my standards just to be with that person. And uh, eventually I started back getting high and I would lose my, myself so bad that I was like, I think her cow mentioned, I was more of a binger because that's where my addiction took me. I can go days, maybe a week, without eating or cleaning myself, personal hygiene, and just getting high and sex and all of this stuff that would go along with it. Uh, eventually, I got a hold of my life in 2007, I want to say 2008. Uh, I went into treatment and I moved uh, out of state. I went down to Southeast. I went down by Florida, Atlanta, and I did a long-term treatment there. And that's when I was getting introduced. And at this time I was kind of like selling healthcare and I got introduced to working with this gentleman to run some of his, his houses as being a case manager because he was interested in my background. And I guess who I carried myself from recovery. Uh, I stayed clean for about maybe a good four, five or six years. Uh, and then again, uh, I met a gentleman in recovery. Uh, he was Italian and uh, we started dating and moved into with each other. Um, and he was doing opiates. And where I come from, heroin was predominantly where I was from. People didn't really do pills. It's heroin, crack, and, and alcohol. So I couldn't tell what, you know, I didn't know if he was on opiates or not. So what happened was, as I began to see the change in him, and I found some of his equipment one day, I think it triggered something in me because I didn't want to lose him. And I ended up getting high with him. Not on the opiates, but on my drug of choice because he did that too, you know. Uh, that went on for quite a while. I ended up losing a lot of things again for the third time, the fourth time around. Uh, and my recovery, I, I felt such a, like a, a really, really unwanted person. I don't want to use curse words here, but it felt really bad about myself. I didn't love myself anymore because I had lost everything. And at this point, I hadn't gotten my bachelor's and had just gotten my master's. And now I'm out here really bad in another state where, you know, I don't have anything, you know, car has been possessed, you know, I've ended up in jail. Uh, my identity has been taken and now people are using me as scam for identity and taking money from other people. And it was just a whole mess of things that went on. Uh, I left and came back uh, to the Midwest uh, to get my life back together. I did harm reduction, if that's what you want to call it. That's what I thought it was. But I just did maintenance where I didn't do heavy drugs. I just drank. I didn't even smoke pot. Um, and about a couple of years later, into being back in the Midwest, some old friends came around and I picked up crack again. It didn't happen as bad as the beginning. But over the next two or three years, it got even worse. Uh, and within the last two years of my relapse, things had gotten so bad where my health began to turn. Uh, uh, losing my career, uh, of all these certain things that was happening in my family. Uh, you know, they say every time you go back out, you pick up from when you start off and it just gets even worse. And that's exactly where it happened to me. 
um, my partner died of an overdose when I left him. Uh, and I remember feeling so bad because I figured if I had stayed, I could have saved him like I was when I was there. And having a supportive group of family telling me, you know, uh, if you would have stayed, it probably would have been you or something worse. And that you had to do what you had to do for yourself. Uh, it took me years to get over it. He's been gone for about seven years now. Uh, relationships, I've realized that in my recovery, it's not really good for me today. That I have a lot of work in my recovery. I have to work on Randall. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot that I know that I can accomplish in life. Anytime that I can go through everything I went through in my life, to have a master's degree. Uh, probably can get my doctorate if I wanted, but I know that I have to work on Randall because I allow, I'm such a nice person, a people pleaser. I've learned that in one of my character defects that I want to help others more than I want to help myself. And in my relationship, I, I have noticed in my past relapses, that's what I've always done. I've allowed them to take over me and I forget who I am. So I begin to work on them and not on me. So it's like, goodbye to my sponsor. I don't call you anymore. Goodbye to my meetings. I don't call you anymore. Life is wonderful. But I noticed when I call it the disease, which it is of the addiction, it is so tr tricky because it, it, it confuses me to say that you're okay, that you're cured, and you're never going to be cured. Mm -hmm. So my relapses today, I used to feel so awful about it. I used to feel so bad. You know, even when I was coming to one year, I felt so bad that I felt like, you know, if I hadn't met that guy, I have almost 10 years today. But I realized that my relapse was part of my recovery. Mm -hmm. I built a lot of assets. I became more humble, very non-judgmental. I do not have chaos. I do not have so much peace in my life today because my recovery and my relapse have taught me along the way everything that I've been through in my life, that it was of my purpose. It was God's purpose, who was part of my life, who was I call God that has brought me along this travel, you know, have given me everything and I have lost. It's like, you know, when I stepped back into recovery, everything that I had lost within six months, it was all giving right back to me. You know, the person saw me today, they had never everything, I skipped the beat. So my recovery is that's what it is, part of my relapses. And I'm so proud of it today okay. for recovery because it okay. keeps me clean today. Good. Hmm. So, let me ask you guys this, and um, whoever wants to answer first, what is harm reduction to you? Like, what is it, like, what, like whoever, like I said, you know, raise your hand, whoever wants to go first, what does harm reduction mean to you? Like, when you, when I say the words right now, what is it triggered? What, what mental images come up in your mind? Like, for me to give you an example, when I, when I first started harm reduction, I would just think of methadone. I didn't think about all the other aspects as far as clean, uh, safe uh, injection sites and clean needle exchanges and all the other things that go out into the community as part of harm reduction. So when you think of harm reduction, what do you guys think of? Well, I'll go ahead and start. Um, I So the homeless program that I am working in now, they practice harm reduction. And so what that means there is that <clears throat> in order to be there you don't have to be clean and sober you can go off property and get high and um and still be there as long as your behaviors are um appropriate and so that's one form of harm reduction and then um uh so it's about understanding that some people are not ready to go the entire abstinent route 
and that what's best for them is, and when I say best for them, there's, um, it's about keeping people alive. So instead of having this um, expectation that you either are 100% abstinent or you can't participate in our programs and in life, um, coming up with ways that people can manage their dependency and still function. Um, so there's also a new trend of people using Suboxone. And we had in the state hospital, they were prescribing Suboxone. And I know they do in the prisons. And um, it's become a way to keep people from overdosing. So it sounds good. But the flip side of it is that people abuse Suboxone. And so instead of what another something else that I've seen is that when people were prescribed the Suboxone, they were selling it to other people who were getting high. So, you know, it's become a very kind of um, that's one of the the negative um, components in my perspective. Um, and harm reduction is also um so it is it's any of those kind of um, well medication management medication assisted treatment is any kind of medication so there's a, a drug that um um it decreases the cravings for alcohol i can never remember what that's called and then there's an abuse which makes you sick if you drink alcohol and then there's suboxone or methadone which is you know they are opiate um uh like lower dose opiates, and then there's um, Narcan. So Narcan is a really interesting, um, you know, people can get Narcan kits, and if they overdose, somebody can give them Narcan and they come back, and um, it blocks the receptors, and I have seen that. Again, I'm not an expert, and blocking the receptors is just my quick way of thinking that's what's happening. So in a, it takes away the high, it takes the opiate away, so in, um, I've seen Narcan used in, I worked in the ER for a little bit, saw Narcan used. I saw a guy run in with his brother in his arms who had overdosed. He was literally not living and they put him on the gurney and they gave him Narcan and he came back to life. And, um, he, uh, it was, it was amazing because I'd never seen that happen and in the meantime, the brother ran away <laughs> and this guy was pissed off because he couldn't, you know, he came back and he was just, apparently it makes you angry. Um, or I thought, so he was like, um, angry. He didn't know what had happened. I finally told him, uh, you need to recognize that we, your life was just saved. So it'd probably be good for you to just be quiet. And, uh, because there happened to be police in the hallways at the hospital and he was like, why are the cops here? And he thought they had to do with him and they didn't. But um, so I um, understand the thoughts and the, um, the practice of harm reduction and keeping people from dying and from overdosing and, um, and like, um, Kyle, I'm sorry, Randall said that he has a, a client now who instead of drinking a 12 pack drinks one beer. And I mean, it's all good. But for me, if I was drinking one beer a day, it would not be, um, I would still be obsessing. I would be wanting more. I mean, I can't even imagine having just one beer a day and that being a, 
I just don't want to go there. Like I love the whole clean and sober, not having uh, the need to, um, well, being able to be clean and sober. It's just a great experience. And like Randall also, I grew up around a lot of, um, you know, it was the culture of using and drinking. So, so anyway, that's kind of my long winded, um, uh, definition of harm reduction and it is safe needles giving needles ex needle exchanges things like that i think that in theory it's a good idea but i think that there's a lot of um negative consequences that come from the practices of harm reduction and again that like the suboxone um people get addicted to suboxone people sell the suboxone i mean it's just a um i have a friend who works at one of the uh, prisons here and says in the morning they're just all lined up for their suboxone and um uh you know that's kind of um depressing but uh there's more to anyway if it's a step in somebody's recovery process um who am i to judge so uh yeah. It's funny you said that a lot of times it, it feels like um, waking them up with the Narcan makes them angry. What I've heard a lot, I've heard this more, more than a, on one occasion, is a lot of people wake up and they're angry that you killed their high. Mm -hmm. That's I, like, there's been people actually say, you wake them up, they're alive, and they say, you know, they start cursing. Hey, what did you do that for? I was fine. I was just, you know, feeling yeah. the high or whatever it was. And they're actually pissed off that you just saved their life with Narcan. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody recently told me that it, if um, a woman who works in a, uh, she's an emergency responder, and she said that what they do in like uh, the ambulance is they give them a slower dose, they um, an IV slower dose, and they don't react that way because it's um, they're it's not such a dramatic. Um, <clears throat> come back to life kind of thing so i don't know if it's if it's really that they're i don't know if it's a chemical response um i always thought it was you know they were angry about not having their drug not being high anymore but either way you know it's a um i think if if my son was an addict i would want narcan to be around so i understand that you know um but using it as a um i don't know i i think i made my point <laughs> <laughs> So what do you guys see as the pros and cons of Matt and harm reduction? Well, let's start with the pros. What do you guys see as the good portions of this? Okay, so I've actually, I was actually typing uh, and, and connecting with uh, Randall about um, naltrexone. I think that's what uh, Barbara was talking about, naltrexone and Divitrol, uh, which is, a, Divitrol is a common name for naltrexone, right? Uh, Suboxone is actually Subutex plus Divitrol plus the naltrexone together. The subutex is the opioid elite or opioid, uh, chemically made opioid uh, is used in detoxes for opioid use disorder. The naltrexone itself uh, actually came out for alcohol use disorder in the beginning, okay? And it, what it does is actually, it comes in and actually blocks the alcohol so therefore, and it's not 100% blocked, but it does block the alcohol from the receptors. And that, Barbara, was what you were talking about. And uh, Randall was actually speaking about in the, in the actual side conversation. So when it comes in and block it off what we commonly call the chemical receptors on the other side, it, what happens is the person that uses Suboxone 
gets a little bit of the subutex and it gets the actual blocker of the naltrexone. So therefore they get some effect. This is why you get a lot of those people that actually become addicted to it. You get some effect, but then it blocks. So the idea of it as you grow up in a prescription is you eat, you'll meet to what we call a therapeutic limit. And all medications go through this point when you get to a therapeutic limit, and that's really a tolerance limit, limit that's giving you the actual effect of what, what we call now harm reduction should be. Harm reduction meaning the ending of negative consequences connected to my use. And however you want to frame that, Barbara, you did such a great job in framing it because I really wasn't thinking about how harm reduction would work in a shelter system. You know, we talked before about the actual initiatives for the safe injection sites and those type of things. Those are all harm reduction practices in different ways, right? So I, from, from my perspective, specifically my experience, uh, I've worked in a uh, mainline substance abuse program. And the majority of our, uh, our persons in the program are connected to the legal system. And that's because of the nature of the drug use, I believe. Um, a lot of them do use Suboxone. Some of them use Vivitrol. Now we're using now what we call Sublucade, which is an actual shot, uh, Suboxone type shot. So um, what happens is some of these people, they will, they will go out and use it as an economy. They will sell it. But for the majority of people I've seen, uh, that has not been the case uh, when they use their Suboxone. I've seen some uh, some great turnarounds from people that have used Suboxone and they use it as prescribed. That would be the other thing. Using it as prescribed and with the actual therapeutics. When the two of them combine together, seems like you get better results. If it's just singly using a drug and it's including Vivitrol, um, uh, the, uh, the original opioid an- antagonist was morphine. Not morphine, I'm sorry. Um, help me out, Mando. I forgot the name of the actual uh, 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 opioid MAT in the beginning. It's, it's an M. Anyway, um, uh, when you uh-huh. use it. Yeah. What you say again? I can't, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I cannot pronounce it either. It'll come in my mind later. But yeah. <laughs> When we use when we use these uh, these specific drugs to help people to overcome the actual outcome of their drug use, meaning that the crime, the 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 uh, the DWIs, the DUIs, the family issues, not going to work, these type of things, these consequences, what we were actually looking at reducing. So when we talk about harm reduction, we're talking about reducing the negative consequences of the use. So however that comes out to be for the per- person. Uh, that's what we're looking at and considering, in my in my opinion, uh, for harm reduction. Okay, and uh, I was talking about anabuse before. The actual name was disulfram. Um, that's the actual chemical name, but anabuse is the name. And anabuse works as um, a behavior modification tool. So when a person uses alcohol, the person gets a gag reflex on anabuse. That gag reflex can be very rough in the beginning. Uh, I mean, really to the point where you're throwing up almost. But it does wane over time. So all this stuff is time limited. That's why you have to have a tolerance level in your system. So uh, the tolerance level, I believe, for antibuse is once every six months. I think every, you know, the, it wanes after three or four months. And then another person get another either shot or the, I think they drink it uh, every six months. For, for uh, Suboxone, it's up to 24 milligrams per day, I believe. Okay. Uh, Subutex is 
two to 300 milligrams per month. I mean, I, I mean, um, uh, supplicate is two to three, um, uh, two, 300 milligrams per month shot. Vivitrol, I think is 150 milligram shot per month. So, uh, uh, there, there are ways that, that we need to look at this, I think, in a very scientific way. Number one, um, when we're using these medications, what's the outcome? What, are, what's the actual thing we're looking at? And Barbara, I like the way you, you share that from your perspective of being in the shelter that, yeah, we'll allow people to come back as long as their behaviors, right, is still in line with good or proper behavior. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for that to happen. Did I kind of explain it well enough? I mean, from my perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Did you mean methadone at all? Yeah, methadone. That's it. Methadone. There you go. Randall was thinking about that the whole time. I'm going to figure <laughs> that one out. I figured Randall would know. I figured Randall would know. Would know so. That's one thing I didn't... I still hear mixed stories about this, especially with the Subutex. Or I'm sorry, the Suboxone. Mm-hmm. The Suboxone, I have a girl in our group she won't care if I use her name, Nikki. Tells me, if I'm not mistaken, she used to get high off of that. But then yeah. there are some people who tell me you can't get high off of that. But the thing was, she wasn't using it to replace anything. She just did that strictly to get high. It was she didn't. She wasn't using it as part of any MAT or any you know assistance program. She just used it to get high, so she claimed. But then I've had people say to me that you can't get high off that stuff. No, so that that's the what I. I was saying about the, um, I'm sorry, I keep shifting around. That's what I was saying about the, um, the people, the men that I've worked with that are locked up and they're given it for, to uh, manage their opioid addiction, but Mm -hmm. then they're selling it because people do, if you're not using opioids or, and you don't have a, a tolerance, then you will get high. And as a matter of fact, I was in a group, I was doing a group and there were two people in the back of the group, and I thought, they're high. <laughs> and um, sure enough, um, I was pretty proud of myself that I was able to, like, you know, identify it because um, it just was out of nowhere that they were they were looking high. They were looking loaded. And um, sure enough, one of the other, somebody else had a prescription. When I told the psychiatrist, she right away said, I wonder if he is get is giving them his Suboxone, and that's what it was. So, so yeah, it can be. Um, it's it can get you high. I think if any of us were to use it, we would feel it. You know, um, so so that's a that's a con um, that it can be. I mean, you know, just like any drug. Um, I think if you want to abuse it, you can abuse it. I mean, that's that's a very loose statement, but um, yeah. So so Nikki's telling the truth. Okay. So yeah, where, I, I've seen it in my travels too, as well. Where uh, and throughout my pet, through my trials and my travels in recovery, I used to see people use methadone to get high off of. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they needed it, you know, and they needed. First of all, they needed every. You have to have it every morning. So that's one thing. They still have methadone clinics, but people have to have that certain amount of milligram every morning. I have to have it. So boxing to me reminded me of that. My partner taught me very well about that because when he was trying to come off of opiates, he would go and buy it from mm-hmm. other people, like you say. And I thought that was going to work because it would take the cravings away from the opiates. But he got to the point where he was taking it and cutting it to this small. 
to make it last so much long from, from the long strip, he would just take very little cuts and put a little piece up under his tongue. But I believe after a while, you know, we get to a meal when we're very addictive behavior and who we are, he began to use it as a getting high mechanism. You know, that's what he was coping with. He had to have it. He had to have it, you know, and I thought it was going to be working. And that's when it began to spiral out more where he was having Suboxone and then still doing pills, mm. you know, trying to cure his sickness. Because mm. in case he ran out of pills, he had the Suboxone, mm. you know, then if he had money to get, to, to get pills, he still would have Suboxone and take the Suboxone in the morning and then he would do pills. And it just didn't make any sense. So uh, that's the pro and con behind all of that for harm reduction. And I agree with you, Barbara. Uh, when I mention about when I meet people where they at, I know that alcohol for me, I can't do one beer. That's just a no-no. There's no, for me, my only harm reduction for me is therapy, support group, treatment. Me having a a psychiatrist that I see, uh, going to my doctor for my regular medical appointment, that's part of my harm reduction because I can't do anything. I smoke cigarettes, that's about it. But I can't do anything. You can't tell me. I have to let it all go. Because see, I can, I know me after all these years that I can start drinking beer again. And it may take another three or four years before I pick up. But baby, when I do, it's going to be a hot mess. So I know that I have to leave it alone because I know alcohol makes me vulnerable. It opens me up. It's like they say, it's a gateway to all my other drugs. And that is so true. It's a gateway. And I skip past smoking marijuana for one day or two and I go straight to my drug of choice, crack cocaine. And then it becomes a very hot mess from there. And it's like, after that, when I'm getting high, I really don't care about beer anymore. You know, that was my main thing. I really didn't drink heavy alcohol that much, but if it was introduced, yeah, give me a shot. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't really go buy it because I didn't know what kind of alcohol to buy. You know, people, again, it's in the world of that. They taught me everything that I know. They taught me how to use crack. They taught me how to drink. They taught me what alcohol to buy. Tequila, this, the blah, 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 that. So today, my harm reduction is that I just stay away from it all. You know, people say, oh, you don't smoke pot at all anymore? No. You don't even have a glass of wine? No. Uh, I can't, I don't even want any non-alcoholic beverages. I tried that before, the N.A. beer. I tried that, and all it does is give me the taste, and then eventually I know Randall now, thank God. For some point, I know who I am. I don't even want that. Mm-hmm. So I don't even want to, I don't even want you to tell me, oh, we're going to make a mock cocktail for you. No, don't even make a mock cocktail for me. I don't want no uh, great wine and all of that with ice cube and an ice cream. I don't want none of that. Mm-hmm. Give me a bottle of water or just give me regular. I just, I, I really don't drink juice that much. Give me a bottle of water. I'm a water lover and leave it at that or a soda because I know what Randall do, you know, so that's my part of my harm reduction. But the people that I work with, I have to meet them where they at. But the pro part of it, you know, I'm trying to stop. What do you think will work? I know me. I heard people say, I know me. I get really, really sick. Alcohol can do a number on people, just like opiates do. You know, the withdrawal with alcohol, we know alcohol is the worst drug it is on the market. Because a person is a very, is an alcoholic. If they withdraw on it on their own, they will kill themselves. They have to go into hospitals. That's the worst drug that I've ever saw, you know, besides now opiates, of course. So I always say, what do you think have worked for you in the past? If they've never done it before, I give suggestions about harm reduction. 
you know, these are some of the things that I've seen people do that I've seen in my travels. You know, they take it down, you know, for what you used to drinking a case of beer, let's take it down, let's take off a six pack. And then go from there and then take off another six pack. You know, let's go from there and then take off another six pack. And that's just like with anything we do, I have to kind of make it correlate with people. It's like my eating habits. In order for me to do harm reduction and lose weight, I had to take away carbs. You know, and I take away those carbs because I know what it helped me. And then I begin to incorporate some of it back because my body needs to get more energy down to burn. That's the same way with cigarettes. People wear patches. They chew gum. It's a harm reduction. That's the positive type of on it. I think the negative part of it is that when a person, the kind of it is when you're wearing a patch and then you're smoking a cigarette still, you know, or you just, it's, 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 it's a disease. I call it a disease. I think we had this conversation in a meeting the other night that a lot of people are confused. And I'm, I think, I don't know if Jim want to ask this question. A lot of people are confused. Why is it called a disease? And I tried to explain it last night. It's just like any other disease, like cancer, HIV, AIDS. It's like MS. You know, they all have treatments they have to have. And I have to try to explain to them that my addiction is a disease because my treatment part is this one I'm doing now of service. Me uh, doing meetings, me having a sponsor, me working steps, me seeing a counselor, me uh, seeing a psychiatrist. That's my treatment for my disease and addiction. And it is a lifelong treatment. It doesn't stop in six months or six years. So I have to continue this treatment. And if we see people in the program, it's Cal State, 11 years clean, people 25 years clean. They continue to do the same thing they've been doing from day one. If you stop the treatment, you may be in remission for a while. But we know with any other disease, if a doctor tells you, if I stop taking my high blood pressure medicine because my blood pressure has been stable for the last six months and I stop taking it, I can guarantee you in two or three months, my blood pressure is going to be off the chain again. Mm. So I have to treat everything. And, and that's what it is. That's the part of addiction is disease. So harm reduction, I'm all for it. You know, for the mat, I'm all for it today. You know, whatever works for you, I have to meet you where you're at. Because I think, as Jim mentioned, if getting into the community and doing needle exchange, you know, to stop the spread of HIV and AIDS and hepatitis C, you know, I'm not telling you to stop, you know. I know a place where you can go get needle exchanges. You know, I know where you can go and get Suboxone or, or maybe go to a methadone treatment program. You know, I'm not going to tell you to stop. I'm always going to say just be kind to yourself and work from there. Hmm. So here's something that somebody brought up. So it sounds like we're getting some good stuff on the positives and the negatives of Matt. Um, what do you think of Matt not being allowed into sober houses? So some people, they go to certain facilities and there are a lot of facilities that will not let you in if you're on Suboxone or Methadone or anything like that. Um, can I answer on this one? Um, yeah, in Bucks County, we have our, um, we, we're now, the state of Pennsylvania is actually working on developing a criteria, a license, so to speak, or certification for a lot of the actual sober houses that we have here, or recovery houses. So in Pennsylvania, we have certain sects or sectors of sober houses. Uh, and it, it really depends on the actual uh, recovery of the person that owns them. But most of these sober houses are owned by people in recovery, right? Mm-hmm. So with the mindset of the person in recovery, and then the other part of it is the medical application and support for the service. Okay, let me explain. 
when you use Suboxone, you have to have medical connections, okay? If you are a sober house and having somebody in the sober house or recovery house that's using Suboxone, if they overdose in that house, you are now at fault. This is important because you're a sober house manager. You're supposed to be helping the people to stay sober. If they come in with Suboxone and you already knew it and they overdose, you, you have a risk, okay? Now, uh, to kind of mitigate some of that risk, right? Sober house managers say, well, we're just not going to deal with it. I've, I've known people, I have, I have clients of mine that actually summarily died because of this, some of this stuff in some recovery houses uh, because the recovery houses, either number one, wasn't paying attention to their medication needs. Number two, didn't have the supports they needed for the actual medication compliance, whether it was self-checks, uh, metal logs and that kind of stuff, or just signing out your stuff, especially with a controlled substance like Suboxone. So that way that it's not given out like uh, Ronald and, and Barbara was talking about how people actually give out their Suboxone to sell them, you know, um, so, to, so you can prevent those type of things happening in the house. Um, so that's number two. So number one, you got the personality of the person that owns it. Number two, you got the risk factor that comes with it. Number three, and I'm gonna go back to the support piece you have to have the medical support and the actual clinical support, which is a, which is the therapeutic support to actually make this work. If a person just take the medication and don't work on their own, the other issues, most likely the medication itself wants to keep them sober for long. I've known guys that came back to my program I, I work at. They were on Suboxone for years, and that's all they did. They didn't go to any counseling. They didn't go to any meetings, none of that stuff. It worked for them until their doctors got pinched for over-prescribing uh, over, uh, over opioid uh, Suboxone, okay, and opioids for pain management. When that happened, those guys were running into the program. A lot of them, we had to, we had to detox off Suboxone, and Suboxone is not a good detox. It takes about 21 to 28 days to detox off of Suboxone. Wow. Okay, long and I'm not talking about just the the actual physical part of it. The physical part maybe about 14 days, but the behavior, the daily use, all these other stuff, the pattern that comes up with it, it takes a little while to get off of that 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 merry-go-round. So if you're going to use a harm reduction, you have to consider all of the aspects of using harm reduction, not just simply using the medication alone. If you use the medication alone without actually working on the other core areas, like remember how I described my, my uh, recovery. And it's not, I, I'm, I'm saying this for me, but I really believe all of us have this kind of connectedness inside of us, mind, body, soul, spirit, and your, your intellect. These things are connected. If we have this connectivity, I think we, all, we should touch every last one of them in our pursuit for recovery or our pursuit for having a happy life, a better life. And I really think that we do ourselves a disservice if we hold on just doing the medication alone and not do the other things. It is a disease, but it messes with the mind so badly that you can take the medication and still think it's okay since I'm off of opioids to go drink, not realizing it works on the same receptor. It works in the same chemical pathway in the brain. Not realizing that. So... It's okay to take a couple of drinks while I'm using Suboxone. However, that mental obsession could start again because I'm starting to do this all over again in my mind. Having something daily, using something daily like that. So the, the young lady that said that she was on Nikki, 
that, that, that she was addicted to uh, Suboxone. I've heard this before. I've had a client of mine come in and I, I, I convinced him that the Suboxone probably would have been good for him to use because he had just went through an overdose. Um, when he took the Suboxone uh, and I watched him and I was looking at the therapeutic limit, he came to my office the first day and said, Kyle, I'm going to get off this stuff right now. I'm like, wait, what's going on with you? He says to me, well, I feel like I did when I overdosed. And I said, okay. I said, give it a weekend. If you still feel that way, then just tell him to stop. It's okay. He stopped. Because, see, you, the person has to be real with themselves. The reason why they're using it is to stay sober, not necessarily get high. If you reach your therapeutic limit, you should not be feeling anything, meaning that you should be feeling normal. You should be feeling stable, so to speak. And that's what we call stable, right? Um, you should not be wanting more. You should not be looking for the actual, uh, you should be stable. And I've had kind, uh, clients that actually got to the point where Suboxone does nothing for them. They don't even feel anything. But I have some other clients that actually use the stuff. And next thing you know, they're looking, feeling, acting as if they actually use heroin. And this is the whole thing. The mental obsession for some people, the behavioral issues for some people, and some other key issues that comes with actual use of the heroin start coming back and that makes them feel like they're not actually sober. So these are things I think that we need to consider when we're talking about using these methods. Uh, this is just one method, right? We talk about the chemical method of harm reduction, um, but other methods as well is, are we reducing the negative consequences or are we just saying we're going to knock the actual use out by substituting it with another drug? What, what's the real game? What's the real end plan for this game here? And I think that's where the focus should and could be is are we reducing the negative consequences that come with the actual uh, use of mainline drugs by using the uh, MAT? And real quick, as he ran, you got your hand up there, buddy. Oh, so, yeah, I, I just want to agree with, with Kyle. You know, the clinical part is so important. It is definitely important because you have to have those components in your treatment. Uh, Again, in my travels and recovery, you know, uh, I had to be redundant, but, you know, my partner went through that. You know, they said, I know you guys heard it in recovery. I know you have cow, jails, institutions, and death. Uh, he went to jail when I left. He went into the institution, which was a recovery house, and he died in the recovery house. They found him in the bathroom. So it was jails, institutions, and death. How did he get into the house? Why was he able to get drugs? Was he buying drugs in there? You know, this whole thing that we have people run these homes, but I've seen them in the past before I met him, that there's so much goes on without any supervision. You know, so now they've kind of made laws, strengthened it more stronger. That if I like, if I want to open up a recovery house with my own, uh, with my degree, I have to get clinically licensed. I have to be able to run it through the state. Because you're taking on people's lives, you're watching other people. And if I have someone manager it and I'm getting funded for it, I have to have people with the credentials to also help run it. You know, a nurse needs to be there, counselor, psychiatrist. You know, all these things come as a component to treatment or the MAT program because it's so important. And I have to reinstate this with Cal State. You know, again, you know, anyone that's listening in the world, you know, that's just like with 
any other treatment that you go through in your life, you know, if you're dealing with cancer, you're seeing a psychiatrist, you're seeing a nutritionist, you're seeing a, 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 a you know, physical therapist, you're seeing all these different components to help you through your treatment. And with my treatment, again, as far as for harm reduction, my treatment for Matt, with my addiction, is I have all these components. And I have to add spiritual components to mine. So I go to church. Some people don't have to add that, but I add it because I need that. I need that connection to my God because I have to have that to keep me balanced, you know? And then I had to try to figure things out in my life. That's like the self-care. I have to take time out for Randall. You know, it was so hard for me at one point when I come, kept coming back in recovery and, you know, these last three or four years, it's like, I don't even want to have sex. So I was so afraid that I put, put sex into the mix that I was going to relapse because I always put sex and drugs and alcohol together. That's how it always happened. So I had to pull away from that. You know, I know people like with porn. You have to be careful with porn, you know, because that's a, a thing also that goes along with addiction. You know, for pleasure, okay, fine. But what are you, what is it that's in your mind? You have to work on these things for yourself. Mm, mm, it's point. all about self, you know, because if you don't know who you are, I've been that route. And I always try to express this to a lot of people. Our addiction is a form of everything about us. You know, that goes from eating. And I think I mentioned this to Jim, you know, when I got clean and I started buying from Amazon, you know, I would get that urge at work on my phone, beeping so your package is delivered. You know, that same urge of an addiction I would get that I'm going to get drugs. I had to back off from that. You know, going to the grocery store, just buying stuff because I had money. You know, oh, I can go get a new car. I had to stop because see, I noticed that with me, I know with my addiction, when I get tired of doing that, buying, eating, sex, I know where I'm going to go next. I'm gonna go to what really gets fulfilled me that enjoyment, but that 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 clinical part of me and my brain. It's gonna say that receptor. Oh no, this is just not enough, you know. And all I have to do is catch me at the right place at the right time. Right here, have a drink. No, I'm good, man. I don't need it, you know. And two, three, four, five minutes later, two, three hours later, give me a drink, man. You know, that's how my disease of addiction treats me, and I have to be very curious. I have to always be aware. Because I know it's lurking, you know, and I have to do meetings because I hear people share about death and how they're dealing with it, their diseases of other mental health issues they're going through, how they're dealing with it. I need to hear it because when it comes to my door, I can always go into my visible tool chest and say, oh, Cal or Barbara mentioned something about that in a meeting one day. Let me pull that out and let me use that coping mechanism. Let me use that coping skill because it may help. And if it doesn't, I try another one, but I don't throw that one away. I always keep them for later because I think I dealt with people in crisis where they so afraid to use old coping skills because they never worked five years ago. And I always say to them, well, you know, they didn't work five years ago. Let's try them today and see what happens. Mm. You never know that they may work again. You know, you used to like to walk along the beach, but you don't have to do that anymore. Let's see if that works now. You know, give it a try. And it's so, we're so afraid to try it because we're so afraid that it won't work. And then we're just like really hopeless. Mm -hmm. We have to try. Try something different. You know, try it again. I'm not going to throw it away. I'm going to hoard those tools because I may need them. And that's part of my mat and my harm reduction. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, other question I have is some people also say with Matt, 
doesn't this deter people from getting sober? Doesn't it continuously, or Barbara, you want to say something? I do. Um, so back to your question about uh, should sober livings have a use um, Medicaid map? So I just want to say uh, in everything that we've been talking about, my mind, of course, is, is going. And um, I talked about no one size fits all in the beginning of this. And so what I'm thinking is that with every with what everyone has said, it, a really good treatment environment and a really good sober living would have an individualized treatment focus because different people need different things to achieve um, sobriety and ultimately be in recovery. And for me, that being in recovery is being clean and sober. And so, um, what I believe those components, I mean, so if one person needs the medication, the Suboxone, it should be just like, um, a lot of programs are in phases. Um, my dog is crying. Um, so I think if, if they're using Matt, that it should be a phase, um, like phase one, and then it eventually, um, go into phase two, maybe, you know, decreasing it and becoming um, completely abstinent. I need to, let me let my dog in. I'm sorry. Cause I'm going off track. Oh, that's okay. Let your dog in. All right. I think that what she was uh, trying to, uh, I hope I'm not speaking on a turn with her is that the phase one would be build up to tolerance. Phase two would be when you're at tolerance, how's your life working and living, how you're actually managing at that very moment. And this is all with clinical, right? And then phase three could be, and I'm not exactly sure if this is what she meant, but it could be how to actually titrate from the actual use of the uh, MAT uh, in such a way that you could get back to your normal level when, when you don't need it. In the beginning of using Suboxone, uh, not necessarily Vibitrol, but Suboxone, uh, the thought was it was a short-term uh, solution for this problem with an issue of, of, of opioids and that a person would get up to 24 milligrams, stay up there maybe, well, between 16 and 24 and maybe stay that way up for maybe a year, two years maybe. And then as their life uh, uh, areas start to get better, they can see themselves to start to titrate off it where they don't need it any longer. That was a thought before. Uh, I think that's, Barbara, she's back. I think that's where she was coming from. You're on Maybe. mute, Barbara. Barbara, you're muted. Okay. So what I really um, believe is that I love, and I've said this before, the culture of being clean and sober. And that's what I um, see as real recovery, as a component of really being in recovery. And so if that was a goal for, for treatment and for sober livings, then I think medication-assisted treatment should be a part of it. Um, and I know that I could be wrong, you know, that some people may need to continue taking Suboxone all their life or opiate or um, narcotic. Uh, methadone all their life or whatever it might be. But my, I think the point I'm trying to make is that we are so 
um, we, meaning our culture, is so um, surrounded by by drug and alcohol use, and it's it causes so many negative consequences. And it's I, I just think it's kind of like um, the devil, so to speak. You know, like I really want to put like a cross and no, stay away. And I think that um, that if we can have really long term environments for people who do, who maybe don't even know what it's like to be clean and sober, who maybe don't even know that they can achieve that. And when I say long term environments like sober livings that are really focused on all of the things that Kyle has mentioned that that homeo um that uh what's the word i'm looking for homeopathic no the um just the uh complete recovery in all the different areas of our lives spiritually physically mentally emotionally you know and and that's where the the therapy comes in that emotional many people that have substance use disorders have trauma histories have um have mental illness or mental health issues because of their trauma history um that has never been addressed you know like and so working in a state hospital it's those are the people that are in the state hospital don't come from healthy high functioning families they come from very um either neglectful, uh, gang involved, um, poor, you know, they come from a culture where they have had a lot of disadvantages and, um, and accompanying all that is a lot of trauma. And so most of them start using and drinking at a very early age. And that's one of the reasons that they have had, um, um, so it isn't just their mental illness and it isn't just the crimes they've committed because they come from from prison. It's the trauma and the substance use. And so I think for really good, solid recovery, you need to have it would be good to have like an individualized treatment program where people are given. Um, so because for all of us that went into recovery have been in rehabs and stuff you're just kind of thrown in there and lumped together with a bunch of other people and it's sort of a fend for yourself you know stay sober and and it worked for me eventually I was able to get clean and sober and stay clean and sober and still keep I had my wits about me so I was able to to pay attention and um and but it took me some time it I needed a length of time to just be clean and sober before any of the other pieces started to come together. So I do feel like I'm rambling and I don't mean to be rambling, but I, I feel like um, whatever works, there's all kinds of combinations of things that might work and Matt might be part of what might work. Harm reduction might be part of what might work, but it's also about really giving that person hope and hope and hoping for them that they want to achieve um abstinence and if they can't they can't but so that's kind of my spiel that's my my uh preaching there okay and you weren't rambling at all um i appreciate all your feedback one of the other things i wanted to touch um um, when it comes to harm reduction all this stuff is 
What is your guys' opinions on safe injection sites and the clean needle exchanges and stuff? Because my, my, me personally, I originally thought, okay, you're just going around to drug addicts, throwing them a license to do whatever the hell they want, not realizing that they're going to do what they want no matter what. Whether it's the whether they're using puddle water in their syringe or filtered water in their syringe, you're still going to put something in that syringe and they're going to shoot themselves up with it. So what is your guys' feelings on having these safe injection sites and doing the clean needle exchanges and providing them with the resources like that? I'm going to jump in real quick. I'll just say, I think it's great. I think that you want to accompany anything, safety and education and um, create having uh, those two things available to people. You know, I don't want somebody to die using or sharing dirty needles. Like um, that's somebody's child. That's somebody, you know, um, so whatever we can do to keep people healthy, but also provide education and an environment of, of compassion and maybe connection and build a relationship, you know? So I don't think it should just be, here's the exchange, but maybe if you ever need to talk, you know, here's, you can talk to me kind of thing. Um, I totally agree. Education, education, uh, intervention is really important. Intervention is really important in education uh, because that goes a long way when it comes to just not just giving them and letting them go. You know, here's a pamphlet about it. Uh, are you doing it right? You know, it's all about patient. It's about education and intervention. Those, I think it's important to have it in our communities. And every community don't have them, you know. And, and it goes back to what Barbara was saying earlier, you know, I put in the chat. Environment is really important. Because you can go from community to community and they don't have none of that. And you go to a certain community and they have all these different outreach programs. You know, needle exchange, you know, MET programs. They got all this stuff that's really in their community. And then like where I'm at, you go to one part of the, of the, of the city, there's nothing around. And if it is, no one knows about it. Only time they know about it, unless they go into the hospital for detox or go into a medical stabilization unit. And one of us counselors or someone, a social worker say, okay, we're going to be discharged. Would you be interested in going to this clinic? And it'd be right in their neighborhood and they don't even know it's there, mm -hmm. you know? So that plays a big part. You know, I had a client that I was working with. I was uh, working in a crisis uh, unit when, when, before I started this job. And uh, he was trying to get help for uh, suicidal you know, counseling. And he was trying to use his insurance and his insurance told him to go to this place in, his neighbor, in the neighborhood. And when he got there, the, the clinic didn't even know what the heck he was talking about, which again, no education. You know, these people hire people to be uh, a, a medical assistant or whatever they may be, you know, and he's looking for services for psychiatrists for, for his crisis for SI. You know, I don't, we, we don't know what that, we don't have nothing like that around here. You know, and it's like, wow. So he had to travel 20 miles to where I was at to get services. Which is crazy because NAMI, he had to go through NAMI, which you always know NAMI is, right? Mm -hmm. And they were the ones that he had to tell them. And, okay, well, we have a crisis center, blah, 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 here. It's, it's open. And then again, not many crisis centers in certain places, mm -hmm. you know? So all of this is environmental because it plays a big impact on our community. You know, every store, or whether it's every liquor store, there's a funeral home, you know, on the same block, you know? For every corner there's a liquor store and a funeral home, you know, a couple of blocks down, you're selling drugs. 
you know, what about the outreach centers? What about the community centers? Okay, they starting to build them, but a little bit too late. No, they're coming in when they need to, but it's kind of at this point now where we having people that's dealing with these, they're dealing with mental illness. You know, we see a lot of crime happening and, and my outcome on it is, it's not because people are crazy. People are dealing with being undiagnosed with mental illness. You just don't shoot out your, shoot outside your car because somebody pisses you off and shoot them and kill them and there's kids in the car. You just don't do that. There's mental illness behind that. So there's got a lot of paranoia and delusion going on. And when they're doing self-medication, well, they're just smoking pot. You know, pot is so different today than it was back then that most of the same reactions, some of the same things that we feel when we smoke that is the same, it's some of the same symptoms that we have as probably being schizophrenic or bipolar. So they don't know the difference. They don't know they're walking around with this manic or this schizo, you know, affective disease. So it's, it's really crazy. And so all of a sudden we bring them into the detox to get them off. But are we looking at the mental illness part? Because if we do not, and I think Mikhail mentioned this earlier, if we do not look at both these components, we send them back to the community and they have not been treated with mental illness, they can stay dry and clean but we have never solved the problem. Whatever past trauma, it could be sexual abuse. You know, a past trauma saying someone gets shot, whatever it may be, those things are still there. And until we deal with that, then our recovery gets better. Because I can stay clean, but am I dealing with my sexuality? Am I talking to someone about that? Because if I'm not, I won't be where I'm at today because like I think I told Jim in the back way before, it took years for me to get to a platform like this to share who I am. I would have never done it because mm. I was so afraid of that, how people would treat me or talk to me because of the trauma that I saw, how they affected other people. But until I worked on that, it makes my recovery process a lot more better. Okay. Um, I want to uh, chime in on the safe, uh, the safe and trusted sites. Uh, I was telling Jim before on the podcast that we had, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago or so. Uh, Philadelphia uh, have an initiative they've been introducing into legislation uh, the actual uh, safe injection site. And um, one of the reasons why is uh, Philadelphia has, on, on the East Coast, has probably one of the worst open air markets for opioids. And that's in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. All right, so in the Kensington area of Philadelphia is also where they're proposing this, the new safe injection site. Well, the community around it has been so traumatized by the opioid epidemic. You can actually go on, you, on YouTube and look for Kensington, Philadelphia, and you'll see what it looks like to have an open market for drugs and alcohol, much like what happens, I think, in Santa Barbara in California or uh, on the piers in, uh, down at South Beach. Um, but this is a purely open-air market. Kids are going around, families are everything else, trying to live their life, and then this is what you see. So their, their feeling is like, well, we're trying to help people, but it, it, will this be more of a help or a hurt? And, that, and this is the mindset of some of the folk down here. But also on the other side, there's stigma, okay? And on, when we talk about stigma, we're talking about how people actually interact with one another and kind of generalize, uh, generalize a group of people to be a certain way. A lot of it has to come with the social implications of drug use, of course. But stigma, I think, is a, is a, is a barrier to actually being able to implement a safe injection site. At one point, when I first heard about it, I was like, clinically, I don't think that's a good idea. 
uh, because now we're giving people a way of using on a regular basis, where's the help at? Until I figured out or found out later as I continue to, uh, to look at it, that the therapist or the actual nurses that are going to be there, the object is actually to give them that, hey, listen, while you're doing this, and you're coming out of this, maybe you want to see somebody about change your life. You know, maybe we can help you out with clean needles. Maybe we can help you out with social services. Maybe we can help you out with this, that. Because to be honest, when a person is actually using, they're probably at their most, if you get them at that right point, right, in their use, they're probably at that point to say, you know what, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe I need to change my life. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. You know, because in my own addiction and I, uh, my last place of use was in Kensington, Philadelphia. And I'm not an opioid addict, by the way. Okay. Um, but I've seen so many people using opioids. I've helped people get recovered from opioids uh, that I could see the devastation that, it, that happens with it, with that specific drug of use that I can't say totally no to it. But I also think that we really need to have dedicated staff, uh, people that understand how to bring a person in, uh, and and not necessarily convince them, but give them all the opportunities that are available on a consistent basis. Those that won't get worried, weary, because to be honest, if the idea is to help people get services, right? Could a professional that see a person come in day in and day out get weary from seeing what could happen with a person as they continue to use? Could be. Never know. So, I, I think these are the type of things that need to be really discussed. Uh, a, a good, solid uh, uh, clinical team that includes everybody part of the, uh, part of the clinical spectrum and governmentals need to talk about how this can work from point A to point B. Maybe a phase approach, you know, instead of just supporting people using, maybe a phase approach where at the end there's some type of uh, uh, harm reduction to the point where negative consequences are dealt with, you know, um, motivational interviewing is being used, you know, relapse prevention is probably taught, something we can use as prevention methods can be used, whatever we're going to do, got to get to the point where that site makes sense. That's the whole key. And that the community themselves can say, I can get on board with it. Because stigma is a big barrier, I believe, to why the site's not being done right now in Philly. How we understand what that site's going to be used for, the traffic it brings, you have to really understand where I'm coming from. Any one of you, just go and click on Kensington, Philadelphia, and you'll see what I mean on YouTube. You'll see it. Once we get the site going, what is it going to look like? Key point. There are other countries that have really safe practices. And I mean, it's like, don't recreate the wheel or whatever that expression is. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think Canada and I think I'm sure. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to say something that um, that was uh, Randall brought up about if there were community centers and people had access to um, like people who cared. It reminded me when I was back in the day, I was on welfare. And when I was like at my use, my worst of my drinking and using and just things were not going well. And I remember going into the welfare office. I can still remember clearly. So I had slipped and I had a cast on 
because I broke my wrist. You know, I was drunk. I slipped. I fell. I, you know, I was just a mess. And um, the woman who worked there looking at me saying, I can't remember what I was there for. And but her looking at me saying, is there anything else I can help you with? And I was like, no, 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 no. Is there any, are you sure if there's anything else I can help you with? And I know she was looking at me and she saw me and she saw that I had problems and she was giving me this little opening. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that she couldn't say, you know, looks like you have a substance abuse problem, but um <laughs> I'll never forget that because I, I mean, I'll, because it was really one of the only times that somebody had, had been honest with me, you know, been, been, um, clear with me. And, um, and so he's taught, Randall was talking about there being community centers and, and at this point in my life, you know, I lived in a really poor area and it was all drug drug dealers and little mini marts with alcohol and, uh, you know, just a really um, ridiculously poor and in it filled with like negatives. And um, if somebody had been like, if there had been a community center with coffee and donuts and friendly people, I would have gone in there. I mean, I was poor, you know, I would have been, I'm sure that I would have wandered in and um, that might've helped me. That would have, uh, that has the potential to really help people. Um, but I'll, again, back to that woman asking me that I'll just never forget that. And, um, and so I feel like we need more things like that, like, like Randall said, and, and as far as any kind of prevention or interventions, um, you know, it's people need to be willing to face that there's a problem and we're still so um uh in denial i think and um and i or maybe it's because alcohol industry is so huge or maybe it's because you know people make money off of um or the pharmaceutical you know whatever i mean maybe it's because people don't want to uh look at the issue squarely in the face because of financial reasons. But um, there's so many different ways that we could be helping people. And, um, but then you come against barriers, come up against barriers. And, uh, and I, and I'm sorry for interrupting you. And I do believe, I mean, stigma is a part of it. I want to say that for myself, thank goodness, I am not um, too proud or too like, you know, private. Like I put my shit out there and, um, because that's why I'm here and, um, I don't always feel comfortable doing that, but I, it's the truth. Like I wasn't, I'm not doing groups in a mental health facility because I'm, um, a great student. It's because of my life experience, um, and being a recovering alcoholic addict and then whatever came after. So that stigma is a tough you know, people, I mean, even that my coworkers um, have frequently told me, you know, oh, you don't want to tell people that you don't want them to know that it's like, nope, of course I do. That's why I'm here. Right. Thank like you. Thank you, yeah. somebody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're, you're so right, Barbara. It's like we, 
we're so stigmatized. You know, it's a way I know that AA and NA is not supposed to be, you know, uh, advertised. But, you know, when I see my community, how it has changed now because I've come back to it and been back and come back, and all the liquor stores are gone. You know, there's no many, there's no many, there's no many marks on the corner. Uh, and that has really driven out the gangbangs, drugs. Nobody's standing on the corners anymore. So it's so quiet sometimes that my parents are like, it's too quiet around here now. You know, and it really is. It's so quiet because either they're in jail or they're dead or they have moved away. You know, the closest, the closest liquor store is at our, is our, is our grocery store, which is like almost two miles away. So mm-hmm. that's at the main big grocery mm-hmm. store, like Mariano's or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But it's so different. But you have these churches. It, I like what they do, you know, when they give up a food pantry and clothes and stuff like that. I like that. But they need more than just that, you know. And if we had community, other extra community centers in the communities where it's really poor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I mean poor. And you instead of you giving out food and say, oh, hey, they have AA and NA meetings here, you know, twice a week at this church. We don't know that these churches have them. You know, right. nobody have time to go on the computer to look on the website and see what's in your area for AA meetings. Right. And everybody's not computer savvy. You know, you have to kind of go back to the old ways because an addict ain't walking around with a laptop. He's not walking around with a cell phone. <laughs> you don't have yeah, a cell phone. Okay. I mean, if he gets a free cell phone, Mm-hmm. Through, through the Department of Premier Services or wherever he gets it from a social service, he's going to sell it. But if you take, if you, if, if you tell him where to go get free, free food at, he know where to go. And when he gets there and you give him a bus pass, you know, have some intervention and education behind and say, hey, you know, they have counseling here in this neighborhood or they have, you know, a, a meetings here in this, in, at this church, you know, that would draw people to come. So when they, in they throws up the addiction, they say, oh, that church, this is what I would, oh, that church that gives away food on Saturdays have meetings there on Tuesday nights. You know, that's how you kind of get the word out. But we're so afraid of what we're going to say and how sensitive it is when we're watching people around who we love die from this disease and addiction for right. no reason. Right. You know, even our detox and medical stabilization units, our psych wards, you know, the doctors, you know, I think to myself, that I'm glad we're getting a lot more people in this profession that have lived it because they have mm-hmm. more compassion about sharing something. Because I get the same thing. I, I just had a meeting the other day. You brought it up, Barbara. I just had a meeting the other day on my job. And I was talking to my supervisor in our meeting, our supervision, about a client that I shared some information about. And said, oh, you don't share too much. You know, and so and we had a, a, in another meeting, me and another coworker said, well, Randy, that's what we're supposed to do. You know, sometimes that's how you build trust with your clients. That's what makes them get comfortable. You know, if I don't tell them just a little, I'm not going to tell them everything. I'm going to give my phone number and address and all of that and get down into the gory details like I did with you guys. But I want to build that trust to make them get comfortable who I am so they can come to me. You know, he would have never opened up to me about his heroin addict, his addiction that he had three years ago. If I hadn't started sharing some things and his psychosocial and Found, he said, yeah, I used to be a heroin addict three years ago. You know, I would have never known, but because I opened up about some certain things in our, in our conversation during the psychosocial, he was able to get comfortable with me to share this. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel. If I go see you, Kyle, and you're doing, you know, you're talking and you're sharing some things about your recovery, I'm going to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, yeah, man, I'm this and I'm that. 
you know, I, I really feel comfortable about that, you know, and I think it's important that we always want to back off because of the stigma of the shame or how it's going to affect the company. This is how we save people today. This is why we're here today. You know, I'm uncomfortable in a little while with recording, but it's about service for me. It's about giving back. Yeah, so um, I, I see that because we're, we're, I think we're getting close to the time, right? Yeah, we're um, getting close to time. So what's yeah. up? Uh, just the last thing. And the reason why I brought up stigma was that uh, it, I think that that barrier, once we are actually working through that barrier in the popular, and it's coming because uh, we, we, we hear the mental health going on and, and with, with athletes, actors, or not, they, they, for actors for years, have been struggling with addiction. That's been out there. But the mental health aspect of it and how it connects with addiction, that stuff is now getting more mainstream and normal, right? And the more and more we mainstream and normalize this conversation, the better these harm reduction efforts are going to work, I think. Um, and uh, I think if we focus on how we actually improve people's lives, whatever mechanism we use, right? I think all of our lives are going to be better. You know, uh, crime is going to be reduced, productivity is going to go up, and all these other things. If we learn how to actually help people instead of harm them, and I think some of our practices as therapists uh, in the past have not really given them enough access, right, to living their best life. And that's why I, I said in the beginning in my recovery, when you asked me that question, I said, what do I really consider my recovery? I consider my recovery being the best me I could possibly be. That includes recovery. It's not the totality of it, but it, it, it does include it. It's a very big part of it, but it's not the only thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I, I focus on every aspect of my life because without it, like, like Randall said, until he focused on some stuff, it wasn't working. If I let go of any part of me and don't, don't work on, on all of it, that pain from that one part can cause me pain in the others. Okay. And that's why I think when I got the mental health taken care of, because all the rest of my life was fine. I got five years old straight just being in, in, in the church. And doing the work I was doing and going to meetings, that kind of stuff. But when I got the mental health under, under control, that is when I started to see my life blossom, where I was totally feeling that I was free. That was the key. And I think we need to, as, as a whole, uh, in recovery, outside of recovery, you need to realize that mental health, coping skills, all this stuff is not, these are not just catchwords really believe that we need to really settle our soulish self, our intellect, our, our, our peace, get that developed in a greater way. Because the more and more we actually focus on that, I think the better our life's going to be. I really do. And I see that in the lives of my, of my, of my, of my clients. My clients call me back all the time, guys that are either uh, struggling or guys that are, that are actually doing well. And man, they report so many great things they're doing for their lives. Not all of them go back to A and they don't. Some of right. them are, are doing it with uh, or self-supporting with their families. Uh, you know, some of them are going to uh, smart recovery or, or refuge recovery. All, but there's other people that actually have all types of supportive mechanisms as long as they are living their best life and enjoying their life, connecting with other people that are living their best life. I'm finding that that's almost as important as just staying off the drugs itself. Without that, I don't think I would be happy being sober. I'm going to be honest. Right. Not my purpose of life. I don't think I would be happy. And who would want a miserable Kyle? I don't want a miserable Kyle. 
I've almost committed matters. suicide three times because of this. Mm-hmm. Because I was not living my truest self. Today, I refuse to live my true, not to live my truest self. I'll be honest with myself. And now work towards becoming even better day to day. That's all I wanted to share. That's my, I guess, my final comment. Yeah, I was going to say, well that, was, said. That, well that, said. Was, that was very, very well said. I agree with Randall. Does anyone else have anything in closing they want to throw in there? Make sure we didn't forget anything, anything I didn't touch upon. I know we had a lot of stuff to talk about today. I think it was a uh, pretty, yeah, pretty good conversation. I'd like to thank you all. And um, I want to um, say to what Kyle said, and that's what we want for other people to experience. And that's why we work in the field is um, hoping that, uh, you know, it's so hard to get someone to believe that their life can really be wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, it really is just one step at a time, but the reason that we're so invested is because their lives really can be wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, just giving people that, that hope or that, you know, just, um, that little glimmer of hope. Um, and then, like you said, to see that happen, I ha- honestly, I haven't had that experience. I haven't seen a lot of the people I've worked with um, because get better. And so now I'm glad I'm at the homeless center because I think I will see that. Mm. And uh, that will be so rewarding. I totally agree. I, and the close of mind, I was going to say the same thing is that, you know, I do what I do, you know, I, and, I, and I've learned this from old school. I hang with the winners. Right. You know, whatever you do in Cal in your recovery, I want to get close to that. Mm-hmm. Not to get close to you, but get close to you is to learn for how you keep doing it. Right. You know, right. what you got, I want that too. And I know I can get it. It's not like, oh, I don't know if I, I'm going to get it. Yeah. I've proven it over myself over and over. So I try to explain that to people when I do that self-intentional disclosure. Yes, I was a bum. Yes, I did things that I'm very not happy about. I, I, I'd come from here, but look where I'm at today. And, and, and I let them know it didn't happen in two or three years. It took them 15 years to get where I was at, but it was a struggle. Yes, it's going to be hard, but you can do it. You know, we have to say we can do it. You know, so when I pick someone in my life to be my sponsor, pick some people that I want to hang around in recovery, I look at their character, what's in their heart, and see that do those two match. Mm-hmm. You know, they walk in the talk. People mm-hmm. could talk and not walk the walk. Right. They're walking the talk. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm very attracted to that today. See, and that's what I've learned that my God has given me other desires besides what I want. He's given me what I need in my life. And he put the right people, the right jobs in my life so I can become the better person that I am today because I don't want to live in that insanity. As I always say to people in, in meetings, I don't want to be that dog chasing my, my tail around and around and around and around and around because that's insanity. And that's exactly what it is, because I'm never going to catch that tail. Mm. So today, I don't have to look at that. I have a peace of mind. Mm. And I just want to thank Jim for having this platform. I'm glad to be a part of it and look forward to many, many more. Yeah, and I'm hoping that we do this a couple more times. We'll always have uh, some feedback from hopefully people that will be listening. You maybe give us some ideas of stuff we could touch upon next time. But for now, that's all we got today, folks. So a little bit of my sales pitch. If you like what you heard, Look down below. You can see the subscribe button. Also, give us a like. You can check us out on our Facebook group. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're everywhere. We do our 
YouTube meetings. Um, we're going to be doing this weekly, but check out our Zoom meetings, which if you go underneath the events tab on our Facebook page, you'll see that we're doing Zoom meetings daily as well. Um, so that's all I have for today. And until next time, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.